This is Climate One. For decades, hydrogen has been considered the fuel of the future. Now, with a slew of new U.S. tax incentives, research and funding, its moment may have finally arrived. Countries are seeing that they need to have a carbon-free option other than electrification to meet their climate goals. There are debates about how to best make clean hydrogen and how much we should continue to rely on hydrogen made from fossil fuels. If we stop ourselves from using the resources we have just because of a philosophical issue of keeping it in the ground, that seems to be tying one hand behind our back. And how could more widespread production and use of hydrogen shake up global energy politics? If you have a bunch of distributed fuel producers around the world, then it does change the way that a country, say, like Russia, would think about its ability to leverage its energy power. Has hydrogen's moment finally arrived? I'm Ariana Brocious. And I'm Greg Dalton. Hydrogen is the first element in the periodic table, the lightest element, and the most abundant. Of course, hydrogen is part of that famous duo, H2O, and methane, CH4. But we also interact with it in a bunch of other ways, to make steel, ammonia, and fertilizer. Right, and for more than a decade, I've heard people talking about hydrogen as this futuristic fuel for transportation and other purposes that would solve a bunch of climate challenges because it can be zero emission. I learned a lot about that from my late friend, John Hoffmeister, who ran Shell Oil in the U.S. And where did John come down on hydrogen? He was a big proponent, and I was and remain a skeptic, and yet we debated its merits over the years vigorously and amicably. I miss him in those debates. And I want to give a nod to John today on the show as we reconsider hydrogen as part of a clean energy system. And we'll get into some of that discussion today about how and where we should be using hydrogen in the coming years. But if we want to use it, we first have to split it from those other elements. And that takes energy, and often a lot of energy. I asked Dr. Julio Friedman, chief scientist and chief carbon wrangler at Carbon Direct, to help us start with an understanding of the various ways we can make hydrogen. The goal here is to make low-carbon hydrogen. And so there's lots of different ways to do that. People have adopted a color scheme that I find counterproductive. The goal here is really about the hydrogen, not the core tech or the core pathways. If you can get a low carbon intensity over the whole life cycle, including upstream emissions and everything, that's what you want to do. Today, we basically make hydrogen by splitting it off of methane and venting the carbon dioxide, typically something like a steam methane reforming unit. That produces itself about 2% of global emissions. Not great. So... There's other ways that you can make hydrogen without the carbon emissions. Straightforward way is to do it the same way we're doing today, but actually capture and store those CO2 so we don't emit it. That is commonly called blue hydrogen. You would have to worry about the upstream methane emissions and so forth from it, but if you do it all right, you can have a very, very low carbon intensity. The other way that we make hydrogen is grade school chemistry. You run electricity through water, and you need to have a lot of electricity, but it works just fine. Sometimes that is called green hydrogen. And the important thing here is if you want to have a low carbon footprint, the electricity has to have a low carbon footprint. So for example, if you made it from solar and wind, that has a low carbon footprint, so does nuclear. But if you pull it off the grid, the electricity will void the carbon benefits of that hydrogen. You will end up emitting more than you avoid. So what are the pros and cons of getting hydrogen from water? versus from methane? Really what you are looking for is low carbon content. And 
if you get it from renewable electricity and water, that's great. But one of the cons is today that's very expensive. Roughly speaking, three times more expensive uh, if you're lucky, seven times more expensive in some places of the world. And that's just because clean electricity costs so much and you need so much of it. In some places, though, like Sweden, that's not true. It is twice as expensive as gray hydrogen, but that's inbounds. For the fossil hydrogen, it is actually faster to decarbonize through something like carbon capture, but you do actually have to keep an eye on those upstream emissions. Uh, if you have fugitive methane emissions, then that adds a lot of greenhouse gas warming to the atmosphere. Electrolyzers and green hydrogen today are all pretty small. It's hard to make large volumes of the stuff today because we don't have the infrastructure or supply chains to do it. It'll take some time to build that out. Eventually, though, that will be the cheapest pathway and it will be the most ubiquitous pathway. So green hydrogen, which we've been talking about using renewable energy to split water into hydrogen and oxygen, is a pretty good climate win. What are the barriers to cost-effective green hydrogen production? Yeah, friendly amendment. It's not renewable power. It's zero carbon power. Um, we have lots of ways to do that. Hydropower, geothermal, nuclear, solar, onshore wind, offshore wind, all of those are ways to do it. And in fact, one of the big problems is people get hung up on that. Right now, there is a big fight in Europe over whether nuclear-based hydrogen is considered green or not. And they are losing time and money on that debate, which is fundamentally counterproductive. There are things you have to do, though, to make this stuff. Because it requires so much energy, you do need a whole lot of clean electricity to make clean hydrogen. We are going to face challenges with infrastructure in the near term. We don't have the transmission systems. We don't have the renewable power facilities we need in order to generate that green hydrogen today. Typically, 50 to 70% of the cost is just the cost of the electricity. So until we can really get super cheap, super clean electricity, green hydrogen is going to keep facing that challenge. We can overcome that with things like policy. In the Inflation Reduction Act, for example, we've added a production tax credit for clean hydrogen of all kinds. That's great. $3 a kilogram. It goes a long way to making that accessible to the market, but not in all markets, not in all jurisdictions, and not for all applications. And what about water usage? This is a question that commonly comes up because the recipe for hydrogen is water plus electricity. It turns out that you don't need very much water. The water has to be very high quality or else the equipment gets broken, but you can make a lot of hydrogen with not much water. So a cubic meter of water is a ton of water that has about 200 kilograms of hydrogen in it. If you scale that up, to a million tons of hydrogen, you're talking about 5 million cubic meters of water. That's just not that much. That's a few seconds of a big river's flow. And even in water-scarce areas like the Atacama Desert, water is not the rate-limiting step. And maybe we could look at it as comparing the water use for hydrogen production to some other forms of energy production, like natural gas, which requires a lot of water for fracking. Is there? Do you have at your fingertips like a rough comparison of how much water that might take? It's not a straightforward comparison. To do a single frack job, you will use 80 trucks full of water, but you don't know how much gas you get from that. You don't know how much it costs. Like, It's hard to make that comparison. It is true, though, that as we think about water in all of these systems, 
the water requirements for this clean hydrogen are much lower than most energy systems we use. The cooling water for nuclear plants, the fracking for gas plants, the byproduct produced water from oil production, like all of that is much more than the kind of water we're talking about in hydrogen. So we've talked about hydrogen production. Let's talk about hydrogen use. From a climate perspective, what do you see as the best applications of hydrogen? So reasonable people disagree about this, but most experts choose the same stuff as the killer apps for hydrogen. And one of those is as a feedstock for clean fuels. To make things like ammonia or to make things like sustainable aviation fuel, you want clean hydrogen in that. A really critical killer app is fertilizer. Specifically, again, ammonia for fertilizer. Half the hydrogen in the world goes to that today. And in fact, half the nitrogen atoms in your body came from food you ate from fertilizer. So uh, that is a really good place to do it today. And it's an existing market that's obvious. Again, fertilizer production, about 2% of global emissions. So decarbonizing that is an easy win and pretty straightforward. After things like super clean fuels and fertilizer, heavy industry is the next thing where most people agree. Things like steel mills uh, can be rebuilt for hydrogen. You can start using them today in chemical plants and cement plants. So these are good uses to decarbonize the very hard to abate stuff. The one place I think we are going to use almost none of it is in passenger vehicles. Light duty vehicles are a poor use of hydrogen today. One of the more contentious uses is for home heating. And in many homes, something like a heat pump is a better way to go. Uh, we have limits to how much of that we can get and so forth. But other kinds of heating applications are harder to understand, are facing challenges. And so that is the point where a lot of people find friction. Should we be using hydrogen to heat our homes? In my humble opinion, we got a long way to go before that's the primary question. The primary question is how do we make it for things like fertilizer, fuels, and heavy industry? Right. And you mentioned passenger vehicles it not being a good fit for that. But what about long haul trucking and, and freight? Yeah. So for small distance trucking, for fleets of trucks, batteries are probably a better bet. But for really long distance trucking, when you're driving from L.A. to New York, when you're driving from Houston to Seattle, uh, batteries are not a great fit for that application. Something like liquid hydrogen or a clean fuel like methanol or ammonia made from clean hydrogen, that may be a better fit. And in Europe, probably not because the distances are short. In North America, probably so. So let's talk about grid scale energy storage. Um, say there's a wind or solar plant wanting to store its renewable energy when the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining. So one option would be to use electricity to split water into hydrogen and oxygen and store the hydrogen in a tank. Then when the power is needed, put the hydrogen in a fuel cell, recombine it with oxygen, make water again, and then thus make electricity. Is that about how it works? Effectively, yes. For short-term electricity needs, like on a four-hour or eight-hour basis, again, batteries are already cheaper and more widely available. But for seasonal fluctuations, a seasonal intermittency, we don't have good solutions. Uh, in Germany, they have a period of time called the Dunkelflaute, where for a whole month, there's basically no wind and it's really cold and it's really dark. That would be good to have a month's worth of clean electricity. And if you're banking the hydrogen at some other part of the year, then you can do that. A friendly amendment to your question, 
People imagine that it's a tank and there will be some tanks, but a really good way to store it is in salt caverns, the same way we store the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And this is a real thing. In Utah, they're building a big green hydrogen turbine facility, and they are building a big hydrogen storage facility in a salt cavern they're making there. And one salt cavern, if it were filled with hydrogen, would equal 150 times all the batteries in the U.S., Wow. Like it's a lot of storage. And so that is very hard to beat. And there's a big value proposition to utilities, to the government, to customers to use hydrogen for these long, long term intermittencies. And does it expire in any way or lose potency? I mean, it's an element. So I assume if it's well sealed, it'll just hold its energy potential until you need it. Correct. It doesn't lose energy over time. Unlike a battery, the hydrogen molecule does the same thing. There's a separate concern, though, which is around leakage. Hydrogen is a very small, slippery molecule, so you have to make sure it doesn't leak. You can lose volume, which is losing energy if you do that. Also, hydrogen leakage has some knock-on climate effects. It is not a greenhouse gas itself, but it does impact greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere because it scavenges the molecules that themselves take out methane and nitrous oxides. So a lot of hydrogen leakage would actually extend the lifetime of some greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Uh, we are starting to understand that, but we know how to make a good hydrogen tank. We know how to make a good hydrogen salt dome. There are already two hydrogen salt domes in the U.S. So we know how to do this in well with minimal leakage. The question is, will we do it? Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of solar and wind projects that are ready to go now, but they're waiting on interconnection with the electric grid. And I'm wondering about the potential for distributed hydrogen energy generation with some of these projects. So say that there's a solar farm and they could just put an electrolyzer there and make the power locally, use it locally, and then it wouldn't have to be shipped uh, across the grid. Is that possible? It, it is possible. I don't think it solves all the problems because we don't have the grid in the United States. We have three grids with yes. complex rules True. Uh, and all these other sorts of things. Uh we know that it is very, very hard to build transmission lines in this country, uh, typically 10 to 20 years to build a transmission line. And even then it might not be built. Uh, so we could make hydrogen or an intermediate fuel like ammonia and ship that instead. Hydrogen is hard to ship. Uh, you can put it in tube trucks and drive it around, but it's not a great way to move hydrogen. Something like ammonia is a better bet. But just for storing it and dispatching it some other time. Yeah, that's something you could do pretty quickly. So let's talk about another scenario. Let's say I'm in North Africa, Morocco, maybe, or Egypt, um, and could build a huge solar farm, but the market for electricity is in Europe. So as we're just discussing the ways of moving hydrogen, how might I use hydrogen as a means of shipping that power? This is a new idea that people are just getting their hands around, but the global South is potentially a massive hydrogen superpower. They have incredible renewable resources in the form of solar, onshore and offshore wind, hydro, and places like Chile or Namibia or Rajasthan, which is northwestern India, Indonesia. These are places where they could make enormous volumes of green hydrogen with renewables. They can't ship the hydrogen, but they can ship the ammonia. And it is already the case that Namibia and Chile have long-term offtakes for ammonia made with clean hydrogen. That is not only good for the country because it creates wealth. That is not only good for the climate because it avoids, reduces, abates 
actual emissions, it also shakes up the geopolitics of energy quite a bit. If you have a bunch of distributed fuel producers that are making clean fuels around the world, then it does change the way that a country, say, like Russia, would think about its ability to leverage its energy power. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. From a technical standpoint, how do we get the hydrogen back out of the ammonia and how expensive um, is that? So in some cases, you can just use the ammonia as a fuel. Japan and Korea have said they will do that. They will use ammonia to co-fire their existing power fleet and they will buy clean ammonia at a premium, and they will use it to meet their climate targets. In the United States, that's really unlikely. We have much better options. So we are less likely to do ammonia combustion ourselves. But we might ship the ammonia, or we might use it for a truck or a maritime fuel or something like that. Today, the way that we get hydrogen out of ammonia is a big chemical process called ammonia cracking. And that requires a big billion-dollar facility just to do that at scale. Thankfully, there are innovators who have novel technologies that are containerized, that are small, that are modular, that can do that hydrogen cracking all on their own. And the technology that they use is actually based on light. It's photocatalytic. Mm. And those technologies can eventually actually produce green hydrogen themselves. And then what about a pipeline? Can we transport hydrogen that way versus ammonia? Most people will be surprised to hear this. The United States already has 1,200 miles of hydrogen pipelines. Oh. We've had those for a long time. They are regulated by the Department of Transportation, PHMSA, the Pipeline Hazardous <laughs> Safety uh, Materials Act. Uh, they take care of this. The number of incidents we've had on hydrogen failures and disasters has been zero. We have been operating it very safely for a very long time. Uh, it is also the case that we have 10,000 miles of ammonia pipelines in this country, which most people don't know either. It takes ammonia from the Gulf of Mexico up to the breadbasket, to the heartland. And so uh, we can and certainly do this already. Whether or not we can do more of it is a different question, but there's no technical reason why we can't have hydrogen pipelines or ammonia pipelines. An important caveat to that existing pipelines that are not built for hydrogen are bad ideas. We do not want to just start throwing hydrogen into existing pipelines willy-nilly. In most cases, the maximum that we could take is about 5% hydrogen blend before things start to come off the rail, maybe 10% in some places. But if you have a cast iron pipeline, don't put hydrogen into it. That's a bad idea. But if you have a PVC pipeline, no problem. You can go up to 100% hydrogen. So we need to reimagine our infrastructure in the context of hydrogen if we want to deploy it for certain kinds of things. Russia's invasion of Ukraine a year ago rattled the global energy markets, and especially in Europe, it put a new emphasis on using hydrogen to replace Russian gas. So how is that effort going, and is that a viable solution? Yes, Russia's war of aggression in the Ukraine reminded us that not everyone cares about climate alone. Energy security is suddenly a thing economics and cost of energy are suddenly a thing. The incredible rise in price of natural gas basically tripled the price of fertilizer around the world and has created a food crisis. So it has accelerated focus on a transition to green hydrogen in Europe. Uh, how is it going? Mm, not great. Part of the reason why is because they have been tied up in knots about questions of purity. And when I say purity, 
is green hydrogen defined as renewable or not? And if it's coming from nuclear power, a lot of countries think that's a bad idea. And the European Commission is having a hard time managing that discussion. Uh, it is also the case that they do not have the infrastructure to do that today. They don't have the transmission power lines for green hydrogen. They don't have the storage tanks. They don't have the electrolyzer manufacturing capacity. They're doing their best to fix that, but that's at best a 2025 solution. 2023, if they have a cold winter, there'll still be a whole lot of hurt. Um, one of the pluses in Europe, though, is that their infrastructure is more compatible with hydrogen today. They can put, say, 20 to 40% hydrogen into most of their pipelines and reduce their dependence on Russian gas that way. The problem is making it. And they are in the near term looking to import a lot of clean ammonia and convert that back to hydrogen, mostly in heavy industrial ports, places like Rotterdam or Antwerp, where they have huge demands for hydrogen for fertilizer and for chemicals. They can pull back their natural gas demand by bringing in ammonia for those plants. Hmm. So 20 years ago, the joke was that hydrogen is the fuel of the future and will always be. What's changed? The big thing that's changed is that this is about climate now. The IPCC's 1.5 degree report in 2018 really shook up the gumball machine. And it reframed climate discussion entirely as a net zero enterprise. If you got to get to net zero, that is all sectors everywhere in the world very fast. At that point, hydrogen looks interesting. It looks interesting for the things you cannot electrify easily, again, like steel or airplanes or ships. It looks interesting in terms of providing high temperature heat that is clean. Today, all of that high temperature heat comes from fossil fuels. So we need a good option for that. And green hydrogen looks like a good option for that. Uh, last but not least, the technology has moved forward a lot. We have much better confidence in things like electrolyzers. The costs of renewable power have dropped dramatically. The confidence with which we deploy carbon capture has improved dramatically. All these things have made it much, much more interesting and accessible. And that has made it easier for policymakers to pass things like the IRA provisions, the 45V tax credits to incent uh, clean hydrogen production. Julio Friedman is Chief Scientist and Chief Carbon Wrangler at Carbon Direct. Thank you so much for joining us on Climate One. This was a real treat. Thank you. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about hydrogen's role in a decarbonizing present and future. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now from your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Coming up, a look at new federal incentives to get more clean hydrogen into the economy. We are paying polluters to clean up their mess. It's true. And that was the only recourse the administration had. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. Today, we're digging into hydrogen. 
We've already covered some of how it can be made and used. To get a bit further into potential applications and the role of federal funding and innovation, we invited two guests to join Climate One host Greg Dalton. Dr. Sunita Satyapal is the director for the U.S. Department of Energy's Hydrogen and Fuel Cells Technologies Office. She's responsible for more than $1.6 billion in hydrogen and fuel cell research, development, demonstration, and deployment. Alan Krupnik is a senior fellow at Resources for the Future and an expert on the oil and gas sector. Dr. Satyapal began by painting us a picture of all the ways we interact with hydrogen on a day-to-day -day basis. There are actually many touch points. So, for instance, the, the food that that we eat relies on fertilizer that's made with hydrogen. And uh, the gasoline, for instance, that we use refining uses hydrogen to remove impurities. And there's hydrogen that's used in food processing, for example, pharmaceuticals, making chemicals, so methanol that ends up you know, making plastics. Uh, there's so many examples where hydrogen is being used. We actually produce 10 million uh, tons of hydrogen in the U.S., about 10% of the global capacity for existing uses. So it's a chemical commodity, but there are many other examples of where we see the potential for hydrogen. It's a carbon-free fuel. It can be used as a feedstock. It can be used to store energy. So I think there's just a lot of interest in its decarbonization potential, especially for those hard-to-decarbonize to sectors. And we'll get into some of those as we go forward in this conversation. As an energy source, hydrogen has had lots of ups and downs over the years. For 30 years, it's been about 10 years away. Sunita, you've had a long career in hydrogen, working at the Department of Energy for close to two decades and in industry before that. Has hydrogen's moment finally arrived? Yes, I've seen uh, so many ups and downs. Uh, both in industry and in government. And I think now is definitely different compared to you know, all the previous times. I think we're, we're not quite there yet, but the answer is yes. I think that moment has arrived and all the pieces of the puzzle are starting to be put in place. So we have you know, amazing policies and incentives. The administration has been, you know, really focused on how can we address the climate crisis. We have governments around the world and industry now, industry investments, you know, hundreds of billions. And part of the reason is that countries are are seeing that they need to have a carbon-free option other than electrification to meet their climate goals. And we've also seen the cost come down, technology advances. And so again, it's not just that you know technology push, we're starting to see that that market pull and just that understanding that hydrogen you know can provide multiple options and that versatility that wasn't there before. So I think we're we're again seeing that moment in time where we're seeing the technology, the market, the policies, all of those coming into play at the same time. So we have both the, the, you know, hopefully sufficient supply, clean hydrogen, demand, sustained offtake. So yes, I, I, I do think it is a, a critical moment in time for hydrogen. Alan, Sunita mentioned a number of current uses of hydrogen, plastics, industry, and those heavy industrial uses make environmentalists and others suspicious of hydrogen because of who favors it, particularly the oil and gas industry. What do you make of that? You know, as an economist, I'm trying to, to view a world where we have all options on the table and not to somewhat arbitrarily take options off the table. So if the oil and gas industry is uh, in favor of hydrogen, that's no reason 
in and of itself to reject it. It really depends on its cost and its environmental benefits. At the end of the day, that's what that's what matters. Uh, implications for environmental justice. I mean, there's a lot of a lot riding on the introduction of hydrogen and the inter and decarbonization in general. But just because some sector is for it doesn't mean anyone, in my view, should be against it. Right. So no, I guess a guilt by association. You know, Ellen, a, a veteran energy executive in Silicon Valley wrote to me, I asked him, what do you think about hydrogen? And he wrote, quote, hydrogen and direct air capture are both being used to delay phasing out fossil fuels as quickly as possible. Direct air capture is sucking uh, CO2 out of the air directly. Do you agree, Alan, that hydrogen is being used as a delaying tactic? Well, again, what you ultimately care about is what's the least expensive and fastest way to, to clean things up. And actually, the hydrogen that Sunita mentioned, the uses in refining and in ammonia production, methanol production, uh, the main uses, this is dirty hydrogen. This is hydrogen that can actually be dirtier than using fossil fuels. So if you can clean up that hydrogen stream, and I think this is the first place we're going to see a lot of action. If you can clean that up with carbon capture technologies, you can get anywhere from 60 to 90% of the CO2 out. So, you know, let's do that first. And since the hydrogen is mostly made from natural gas, that is going to mean that we still use our natural gas. But let's not forget that the natural gas, because of the fracking revolution, is very cheap. Now, it does have a, a pollution attached to it, and most particularly methane emissions that can leak out at the site and through pipelines and processing and so on. But if you clean those up and then use carbon capture to capture the CO2 that comes out of the hydrogen process that uses the natural gas, this seems to me a, to be a perfectly acceptable way to move forward. If we artificially stop ourselves from using the resources we have just because of a philosophical issue of keeping it in the ground, that seems to be tying one hand behind our back. Cindy, let's get you to respond to that. Most of the hydrogen use today is dirty. Uh, if we are going to clean it up, carbon capture and sequestration, the federal government spent billions of dollars on that. Hasn't really proved very effective so far. That seemed to be all, what, another one of those things that's always 10 years and a few more billion dollars away. Your response to Alan about cleaning up the hydrogen that's dirty now, and we need to do that. The challenge is that we we still don't have the. It's such a nascent industry when it comes to, you know, electrolysis, which is the other approach, just splitting water. So using renewables or clean electricity, uh, such as nuclear, taking water and producing hydrogen and oxygen. So again, it's such a nascent industry, and we need to, you know, meet our climate goals. You know, the goals are, are net zero by 2050. That's only 27 years away, and so we have to scale again. As Alan said, right now, if you think about the amount of hydrogen that's used, you know, globally, it's, it's, it's needed, you know, fertilizer, there are many, many examples, and there's no other options. So right now, most of that uses fossil fuels. 
and the emissions is, is huge. In fact, one of the uh, statistics from the International Energy Agency is that the amount of CO2 just from hydrogen production today globally is more than the entire emissions of Indonesia and the UK combined. And so, you know, we have to clean that up. So let alone the, the new uses, because it's, it's, you know, a needed chemical um, in industry. And so many call hydrogen the Swiss army knife of energy. So the fact that you can use multiple resources, so diverse domestic resources in any country. So using that natural gas with CCS, of course, um, especially as a, a transition strategy, as we scale up the use of renewables and you know other forms, biomass and so forth for clean hydrogen, it's it's just it's just critical because we still need the demand side, the infrastructure, all of that growth that you know needs to happen, and we can't afford to wait for the, the perfectly clean electrolytic uh, hydrogen. I just want to say something about the cleanliness of green hydrogen. Because, and I'm sure Sunita knows this, if the electricity that you're using in the electrolysis process is kind of dirty, it doesn't need to be very dirty before this green hydrogen is not all that clean itself. So we usually think we need, let's say, a dedicated uh, solar field or dedicated wind farm that is off the grid and would use to be used to power the hydrogen production uh, process through electrolysis. But those instances are few and far between. And once you're pulling electricity from the grid, uh, you've got fossil fuels in there. And that can be problematic. Mm -hmm. Even in some of the cleanest states have, you know, gas, et cetera. There's a lot of federal money coming into hydrogen now. One goal is to bring down the cost of produced hydrogen by 80% to a dollar per kilogram in a decade. Sunita, where does that effort stand to bring down the cost of hydrogen? So when President Biden asked our Secretary of Energy, Secretary Granholm, uh, almost a couple of years ago, what, what can we do to really accelerate progress to address the climate um, challenge? And that was the beginning of the Energy Earthshots Initiative. So many will remember the, the moonshot from over half a century ago. And the idea was to launch these really big, bold, ambitious goals uh, to really galvanize the, the global community. And so the very first was the hydrogen shot. And it has an easily articulated goal of one, one, one. So $1 for one kilogram of clean hydrogen in one decade. And that's compared to the baseline cost. Again, there are many assumptions here of about $5. Uh, per kilogram. So we have research funding now with the bipartisan infrastructure law, a billion dollars specifically for electrolysis, but we also have funding for deployments and demonstrations. So for example, the hydrogen hubs. And so it's really about bringing all those pieces together, the research, the demonstration, the scale up. And so we're starting to see costs down. We're planning to announce you know, additional funding opportunities, working on the, the cost of the electrolyzer Again, uh, various components, also the cost of the electricity, that's a huge contributor uh, to that. So I think, you know, based on, on what we've seen, um, we've seen, you know, already probably about a dollar cost reduction from the time we've we've launched it based on our estimates. And maybe one one uh, example, since not everyone 
relates to a dollar per kilogram of hydrogen. So it's you know a little over two pounds. But one kilogram of hydrogen has about the same energy content as one gallon of gasoline. But hydrogen actually has so much more energy content, about three times more on a weight basis compared to gasoline. So when you use it, for instance, in a fuel cell, let's say in a vehicle, you go a lot further so that cost, again, is, is, is pretty low if we can get that cost down to about a dollar. And because hydrogen from natural gas today is only about a dollar fifty, we really have to get that cost down to be competitive and, and really to get to scale. And what I heard you, I think you say, Sunita, is that the price started around $5 a kilogram. You think it's come down about a dollar to four, and you the goal is to get to one. So you're 20% of the way there. Alan, there are new tax incentives at play now that are helping spur the industry to clean up industrial hydrogen production, which we've talked about is quite dirty. Can you sum them up and tell us how significant you'll, you think they'll be in cleaning up hydrogen, all this new federal money? Actually, in addition to the tax incentives, there's a hydrogen hubs program that I'm hoping will uh, really uh, push things along. So I'll mention all three. The two main tax incentives here, and there are others, but the two that we look at, shorthand is 45Q and 45V, and these refer to sections of the tax code for tax credits. So the 45Q is a tax credit for carbon capture, utilization, and storage. And the 45V is for hydrogen. And so the hydrogen tax credit gets more and more generous as the hydrogen gets cleaner and cleaner from looking at the life cycle uh, CO2 emissions. Sounds the, positive. Yeah. That sounds very positive. But how positive it really is is going to hinge on the IRS rules. Because the IRS, since it's a tax issue, the IRS has to write rules for what counts as, let's say, green hydrogen versus uh, its uh, uh, blue or other colors of hydrogen, that is blue hydrogen being hydrogen made with carbon capture. As I mentioned before, it's about the treatment of the electricity that goes into the electrolysis to qualify for that really big subsidy. And we don't know what will happen. And there is a trade-off here. Because what you want is this tax subsidy to really jack up the hydrogen market and create you know, lots of new projects. So if you're a hydrogen fan, you want the IRS rules with respect to electricity to be you know, pretty favorable. But if you're an environmentalist and you want the CO2 to be reduced, you want to be darn sure that that electricity is as clean as possible. And it's a tricky, it's a tricky question. And we're all waiting with bated breath to see what will happen. Now, at the exact same time, you've got 48Q, which doesn't have necessarily these problems because the subsidy doesn't depend on the life cycle. It's just like how many tons of carbon you capture. So we think that the in the short run, the 45Q is actually the better bet for industry and then they can create hydrogen using natural gas with carbon capture. And then finally, the Hydrogen Hubs program is a $8 billion program. It's going to fund six to 10 hydrogen hubs. And by a hub, that means it has producers and it has off-takers, so demanders from the hydrogen. And it's going to be different hubs around the country. 
And there's a lot of money. This could be a billion dollars a hub, and it has to be matched by the private sector. So there's a lot that could happen here, a lot of action. And in fact, there have been 33 uh, encouraged hub proposals that we're hoping will come into DOE, and then DOE can choose among the best for uh, jumpstarting this market for clean hydrogen. And we'll get into the hubs in just a minute. But Alan, on the do the tax incentives for carbon capture, utilization, and storage amount to paying polluting industries to clean up their mess that they should do with shareholder dollars rather than taxpayer dollars? Well, we have, in a sense, a dysfunctional Congress to blame for that. So that's a yes? Is that a yes? <laughs> it, it, we are paying uh, polluters to clean up their, their mess. It's true. And that was the only recourse the administration had, these tax credits, as well as more standard grants and loans that came through these infrastructure bill and the Inflation Reduction Act bills. But to get at the, to, to have the polluter pay, you need regulation. And economists like myself would favor some price on carbon that would provide incentives to reduce your CO2 emissions cost effectively, and that would probably give a boost to hydrogen as well. But that wasn't on the table. So, so you, you prefer something, but what you, what you would like wouldn't get through Congress, so we're kind of stuck with these tax things that were able to be done through reconciliation. It, it, exactly. And it still can be quite effective, but it's going to fail the polluter pay test. So if you were to sum up, Sunita, for someone, a friend who asked you, what are taxpayers getting out of these new programs and federal incentives? What, what's your elevator response to what we're getting for taxpayer money on hydrogen? Even just looking at the progress, you know, a lot of people, I think, don't recognize how much has happened over the years. Just in our program alone, we have over uh, 1,200 patents that have been issued to companies, universities, labs, you know, who've, who've done the research and developed uh, innovations. We have uh, 30 technologies, actually another 65 that we think could be commercial in the next few years. And this ranges from, you know, even developing the electrolyzers or the fuel cells. And another example with a niche market, and this is an example with the American Recovery Act over a decade ago, and that was a really small amount of, of funding. It was about $40 million that we had in, in our office. And we demonstrated some of the very first, the world's first hydrogen fuel cell forklifts. Now we see over 50,000 hydrogen fuel cell forklifts. They're in the warehouses, major companies, in fact, like Amazon, Walmart, and so forth. Instead of having to wait to, to charge batteries, they have the quick fueling hydrogen forklifts that have completely zero emissions at the warehouses. In fact, every few seconds, some customers refueling with hydrogen. So, you know, our role, if you look at that, the government investment of helping to drive innovation and also to de-risk the technology and enable those first-of-a-kind demonstrations so that now we can see scale, you know, real commercial viability and, and commercial liftoff, uh, as we say. So I think Everyone's getting more than their taxpayer dollars worth, <laughs> considering, you know, all the work that's been going on in, in clean energy and, and hydrogen. And Ellen, what, what would you be your one or two sentences on what taxpayers are getting for all these billions of dollars directed toward hydrogen? Well, we're getting the chance to see if hydrogen can live up to its promise. That's the main thing. And hopefully it will. Uh, I would have preferred 
not trying to pick winners ahead of ahead of time as we've been forced to do, but hydrogen could be a fantastic winner and it's we'll have to see. And would you say that if it doesn't win this time that we should not direct future taxpayer dollars that it's this is the end of the um, hydrogen gravy train or <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean after this gravy train these markets better be be uh in fairly good shape because this is a a a, a very fat gravy train and 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 I think DOE staff and and programs are designed with the best of intentions and helped by Congress. Um, it's hard to find, you know, major fault. So I'm I'm hopeful, but one has to be realistic that there are a lot of uncertainties that have to be worked out, and uh, a lot of slip between the uh, cup and the lip. Coming up, imagining a future where semis are powered by hydrogen instead of diesel. Where does it make sense? And looking at how do we have clusters where we can incentivize demand, not just build out stations you know, ahead of time and have stranded assets. That's up next. Hey, Climate One fans, we have some exciting news. We are now on Patreon. That means that you as a subscriber can get access to Climate One episodes free of ads interrupting your listening experience. For just $5 a month, your Patreon membership also gets you access to our Climate One Discord channel, where you can discuss the episode with other Climate One fans and begin to build your own climate community. Best of all, your support makes future Climate One episodes possible. Join us today at patreon.com slash climate one. When it comes to using hydrogen in applications like long-haul trucking, there's a chicken and egg dilemma. Builders want to see fuel distribution first, and fuel distributors want to see the vehicles before they start pouring concrete and putting in fueling stations. Climate One host Greg Dalton asked Alan Krupnik how he sees this chicken and egg problem resolving. I, re I remember uh, back to the, uh, the fracking uh, revolution for natural gas when the uh, plummeting price of natural gas caused a revolution in heavy-duty trucking that had to confront this exact same situation where you, you need the, the stations to refill with compressed or even liquefied natural gas to refill these trucks, but you didn't want to build the trucks until you had the network. Uh, and that was going to happen. The networkers stepped up and the truck manufacturers stepped up and they kind of were going to do it together. But, uh, then the price of oil uh, came down and all of a sudden this didn't look like such a great bet. So hydrogen faces the same issue, but with semi-trucks, with the heavy-duty trucks, the benefit is that they travel along the same routes. So you could take the natural gas view and you could have hubs along, uh, filling station hubs along major interstate routes and that might go a long way to handling that. And I might add that there is a project in Arizona that is uh, building a billion-dollar plant for heavy-duty hydrogen trucks. So, you know, this could happen. And maybe if I can add, Greg, also there's, and to stay tuned, because we do have a joint office 
with Department of Energy and, and Transportation, and there's additional funding planned for fueling corridors. So in terms of the, the funding, I know it might seem like a lot, but $8 billion, it's, it's really just a drop in the bucket. So there's many billions more being spent by the private sector, and that will be needed, actually, to transition. But I think going back to vehicles, uh, again, where does it make sense? Those examples, like you mentioned, the heavy-duty, long-haul trucks, where it'll be difficult um, in, you know, in some cases to have batteries or the long charging times for really long driving range or payload. Um, and looking at how do we have clusters where we can incentivize demand, not just build out stations you know, ahead of time and have stranded assets. Sunita, the Biden administration has prioritized Justice 40, environmental justice concerns uh, across the government. What are the environmental justice concerns of communities who worry about being near these hydrogen hubs that we've talked about? There is some concern that though they might be jammed in communities of color, as so many industrial uh, facilities have an environmental racism in our country. Yeah, thanks so much for bringing that up, Greg. And it's a huge priority for the Biden administration and engaging with the environmental justice groups, the disadvantaged communities. You mentioned Justice 40, where 40% of specific federal investments need to benefit those disadvantaged communities, those who've historically experienced injustice. So there are many, many um, actions now. So, for example, the Community Benefits Plan requirements um, that we're including in our funding opportunities, um, really incentivizing engagement with the communities. So it's not, you know, clean energy or, or projects for communities, but with communities. So engagement, I think, is, is really critical. And so we're starting to, to get some of that feedback and um, being inclusive. But I think, you know, it's it's a challenge. So I think a lot of those those issues that you brought up are, are real. And I think it's going to be really critical to see how these projects develop, ensure that we're, you know, we are addressing the concerns, you know, right from the beginning and throughout the whole process. Hydrogen leakage is something that's getting more attention recently. It's just starting to be understood. It's not a greenhouse gas itself, but it can extend the life of others. So how concerned are you about hydrogen leakage? Basically, the OH radicals in the atmosphere suck up, they're like the vacuum cleaner in the atmosphere, and they suck up the hydrogen. And so indirectly, they prolong the life of methane. But if we're going to be reducing methane, which is the goal in reducing fossil fuels, then in the long term, you know, it won't be as much of an issue. But we definitely recognize that, you know, we can't dismiss this potential uh, issue. And we also launched funding specifically uh, to fund sensor technologies to be able to detect these really small leaks, which is, you know, not really commercially viable today. Alan, if you look in your crystal ball as an economist, uh, what do you see as the role of hydrogen in the U.S. energy economy 10 years from now? I think we'll see um, the hydrogen that we're already producing getting produced in cleaner ways. The producer and the, and the demander are often the same person at the same company in the same place. So you don't have to worry about pipelines. And so it's a, a simpler process. If we go out further, 2035, 2040, then uh, you'll probably see a broader variety of uses. And maybe much earlier than that, you'll see the blending of hydrogen with natural gas. You can get maybe 10, even 20% hydrogen potentially mixing with natural gas and burn it in power plants, for instance. 
that's a pretty quick way to uh, reduce your carbon footprint if you're uh, uh, a utility, as long as that hydrogen is clean itself. So uh, then we're talking about trucks, and I, I think we've talked about that already. We could see uh, fleets of hydrogen-fueled uh, semi-trucks, and uh, the steel industry is targeted for some uses of hydrogen where high heat is required and other uses. So I think we'll be, we'll be seeing it used in uh, a number of places, whether we have a, a major viable hydrogen economy by, let's say, 2035. I don't know. That's, that's a little hard to see at this point. So if you had a crystal ball as we wrap up here, uh, Sunita, what would you say is the role of the hydrogen in U.S. energy supply 10 years from now? If we can put all the pieces of the puzzle in place, we have the tax incentives, if we can get the supply of clean hydrogen and then get the demand, for instance, the hubs, we have a loan guarantee program, we're seeing large financing, you know, private sector um, investments, then, you know, I see decarbonizing existing uses of hydrogen. So for example, the ammonia, the refining as early markets, there's also potential increase interest in exports such as ammonia, because some countries really look to the need for importing uh, clean hydrogen. And then the trucking, as well as uh, sustainable aviation fuels, so hydrogen plus CO2, liquid fuels is another opportunity, the methanol, for example, as well, chemicals, and then the steel industry. Steel alone accounts for you know, over 7 8% of global emissions. So I think there's huge potential for hydrogen. But again, a lot of challenges. We still have to address production, delivery, storage, end use, cost, performance. So again, I think this is a critical time to make sure we get all those pieces right. On this Climate One, we've been talking about hydrogen with Dr. Sunita Satyapal, director for the U.S. Department of Energy's Hydrogen and Fuel Cells Technology Office, and Alan Krupnik, a senior fellow at Resources for the Future. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. Talking about climate can be hard, and it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. Please help us get people talking more about climate. You can give us a rating or review or send a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Greg Dalton is our host and executive producer. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Our producers and audio editors are Austin Cologne and me, Ariana Brocious. Megan Basilia is our production manager. Wensi Shada is our development manager. Our theme music was composed by George Young and arranged by Matt Wilcox. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. Thanks for listening. Hey, Climate One fans. We've all gotten used to a subscription model for paying for the things we really value. Here at Climate One, it's no different. We produce this show every week for free, and now we're offering you an opportunity to get our show free of ads. For just $5 per month, you can join us on Patreon and get access to our episodes free of ads and get access to our exclusive Climate One Discord channel. That allows you to discuss the episode with other Climate One fans and begin to build your own climate community. Best of all, your support makes future Climate One episodes possible. Join us today at patreon.com slash climate one.